The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. I want to read uh, Luke 16, if you'll turn there. Luke 16. This, is, this text is really fascinating because when you start looking at commentators... Everybody has different ideas about what's going on here because of Jesus' comments about what happens here in this parable. But listen to this. This, is, this chapter is basically made up of a couple of parables. But listen to what Jesus says. Now, he was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, a steward, somebody that oversaw his business. And this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and he said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, now when somebody talks to themselves in the book of Luke, you know they're in big trouble. So the manager says to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do. So that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors. And he began saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. One thing you need to know is the Jews could not charge interest. But what they did do because they found all kinds of ways to go around the law. And one, one of the things they did with interest is they simply charged them for more than they actually got. That was the way they were able to uh, get what we would call interest. Another thing they did is you couldn't milk a cow on Sunday. I mean, on, on Sabbath, I'm sorry, on Saturday. You couldn't milk a cow on Sabbath unless it, it was just a, the cow needed it, needed relief. And so they, you would have to milk the cow on the rocks and just so the, the milk would just dissipate. So what some of them did was they would clean rocks up, put them in a bucket, and milk their cow on the rocks, and then use the milk. They were just like us. You know how we do. We keep the law by twisting the law. Verse 6, and he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill, sit down, and quickly write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. And his master praised the unrighteous manager. Why would he praise him? He's cheating him. The master praised the unrighteous manager because he acted shrewdly. The word shrewd, you use that term sometimes, I'm sure. Shrewdly, it's from a word that means to see things See how things fit together in a way that you can deal with them. Uh, it's, it's very similar. It's related to the same word that's used to, in Philippians 2, for example, where to have the mindset of Jesus. The mindset of Jesus was he emptied himself. He didn't think it was robbery to be, to be equal with God. That is something that he could use for his own benefit. But he empties himself of himself in order to come and die for us. And so here, when he says that this, this manager is acting shrewdly, He's saying he was really wise in what he did because he's, he's, he's finding a way that he's going to survive. 
And he goes on in verse 9, and Jesus says, I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness. That is the wealth that you get, you make, you accumulate in this fallen world. So that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. Jesus is commending him too. And he's saying this is what believers ought to do. They ought to use their wealth, the wealth that they accumulate, to bless people so that in the future, when they are with these people in the heavenly dwelling, that they will welcome them. He who is faithful in very little thing is faithful in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth. Now, don't, don't, what he's talking about when he says unrighteous wealth is simply the wealth that we obtain in this fallen world. You are all wealthy. I'm sure you know that in, uh, in the light of the world situation. You're all wealthy people. We are all wealthy. We have more than we need. And so he says, you should take this wealth and use it in this way. And he says, therefore, if you've been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will, who will entrust you the true riches? In other words, if you're, not, if you're not faithful in using what God has provided for you for the kingdom of God, then how are you ever going to receive something for yourself? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant, by the way, everything you have belongs to God. We are stewards. We manage what we have because God is providing it for us. And if you don't believe that, just talk to some people who've lost it all, all of a sudden, through circumstances they had no control over. Because God's in control of this world. And so everything that we have, we are managers of it. We are stewards. In fact, this is one of the things in 1 Peter chapter 4 that Peter says that we ought to do is because we're living in these last days that we should be good stewards of the manifold grace of God, which means we should dispense God's grace to people through the gift that he's given us. He goes on verse 13, no servant can serve two masters. Now servants often were owned by more than one person, but they only serve one master which means only one person could be their master at any given time. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. You cannot serve God and wealth. God has given you wealth, and you cannot serve God and wealth. You must serve God so that we will use our wealth in a way that is consistent with who God is and what the kingdom of God is. Now, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all the things, these things, and they were scoffing at him. They were scoffing at him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. That's scary, isn't it? God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Now what he means by that is the old covenant was in force through John. John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. So he says the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time the gospel of the kingdom has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. Now what he's talking about is in both Mark and Luke we are told that when the John the Baptist came preaching he was preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and when Jesus came preaching he was preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. 
I should say this again. I know I've said it over and over again, and I'm repeating myself, but I just want to drive it home again. We are in a present form of the kingdom. It's called the kingdom of God's dear son. We live within this kingdom by faith in Jesus Christ. There's a future aspect of the kingdom that's coming. We pray for it. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's a future form of the kingdom coming, but there's a present form in which we live. And this, he says, is what he preached. He preached the gospel of the kingdom. They should have been able to see that the kingdom had drawn near them because the king was right there. And the way he was living and ministering and teaching and preaching manifested the fact that he is the king. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of the letter of the law to fail. Now, what he wanted them to understand is they were still living under the law of Moses. Even though he came preaching the gospel of the kingdom, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. You wonder, why did he put that there? Because it was the most neglected and broken commandment under the Mosaic law. They found a thousand reasons within Judaism to break this commandment. A man could divorce his wife for just about any reason. If she burnt a meal, if she uh, didn't look like the way he wanted her to look, any complaints he have, he could, he could divorce his wife. He could give her a certificate of divorce and send her away. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 19. He's going to give another parable. He says, now there was a rich man. And he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in the splendor every day. He was rich, and he lived like it, and he enjoyed his life. And a poor man, and there was a poor man named Lazarus who laid at his gate covered with sores. And longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table, besides even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. That was his medical treatment. You see, that, that was the medical plan they had and he experienced. So you have this extremely rich man who was enjoying his riches and this extremely poor man who was just trying to survive. Now we, we learn more as we go on and this, this poor man was a godly man who served the living God. The rich man was someone who did not obey the law of God. He didn't care for the poor as he was commanded to do. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. Now I just, I need to explain, what does this mean, Abraham's bosom? Well, in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, when people died, they went to a place that was a place of rest. Some believe it was in heaven. Others believe it was in the heart of the earth because that's the way it's described. But they were not in pain. They were not in suffering. They were waiting for the day of resurrection. And it was referred to as Abraham's bosom. They were with Abraham, the believer. It goes on, it says, in Hades, and the, and the unrighteous would go into Hades or death, in the realm of death, and they would be tormented, waiting for the day in which they would be cast into the lake of fire. It's a horrible thought. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, this is the rich man, being in torment, and he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. So he sees this poor man that he had totally disregarded, and he's in the presence of Abraham, awaiting the day of resurrection. And the rich man cries out and says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. 
and send Lazarus so that he may dip the, the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you receive good things, and likewise Lazarus, bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed. In other words, you're getting what you earned. And he says, besides that, there is this great chasm fixed between us so that those who wish to come from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, this is the rich man begging Abraham, I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. If he can't come to me and give me any relief from this flame, then please send him to my my father's house, to my family. For I have five brothers. Send him there in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Isn't that amazing? You have the word of God. You have the word of God. This rich man wanted him to send Lazarus to go talk to his brothers so they wouldn't come to the same place. He says they have the word of God. But he said, no, Father, but if someone goes to them from the dead, if if someone's raised from the dead and goes to them, they'll repent. And Jesus says, but he said to him, Abraham says to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead. We proclaim his message all the time to everybody that we can. Another man named Lazarus, remember, was risen from the dead. And what Abraham says is, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't listen to somebody who's raised from the dead. The word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. And he says, if they won't listen to this, they won't listen to anybody, even if he is raised from the dead. Now, these two parables are fascinating. There's all kinds of arguments over why he's being commended, this, this manager who's been cheating his master. Some think what's going on, the reason he gets the praise, is what he really did was he simply removed his profit that he snuck into these bills and had them pay exactly what they should have paid his master. But there's no indication of that in the text. The point in the text is this, that this man was acting shrewdly. He was applying what he knew about the whole picture to this situation, that he needed to pave a way for him to be able to be taken care of. He was too old to dig and too proud to to beg. And so he figures out a way to use the wealth that he has or use the, 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 the authority that he has in this situation to pave the way so he would be welcomed by those who could welcome him into their homes and their businesses. He's trying to make a point here. The point is we should use our money shrewdly as believers. Now you think what I'm talking about, you need to really make good investments so you can accumulate a ton of money. That's not what he's saying. He said we should use the riches we have to advance the kingdom of God. This is what happened on the day of Pentecost, if you remember. And it's what's been happening throughout church history. That believers who value Christ 
have, have invested in the work of the kingdom in this world. Money is a test of our faithfulness to God. It's probably the biggest test. I've heard people say, if I can see your checkbook, I can tell you what your spiritual life is like, how you spend your money, how you invest in the kingdom of God. If you don't, sh- if you don't use your wealth in a way that shows God is more precious than things, verse 11 says, there's no reason to think that we will ever be entrusted with the true riches of heaven. In other words, this is a mark of salvation. This is a mark of having a relationship with God. You treasure God above all things. Is it possible to be a Christian and not treasure God above all things? No, it's not. That's like saying, can I be a basketball player if I never play on a team? No. You can be a guy who goes out to the park and shoots hoops by yourself, but you're not a basketball player. A basketball player is a team member. And a believer is someone who values God above all things. And it shows up in the way that he manages what God has provided for him. And if you notice, the Pharisees respond to this teaching with scoffing. And the reason is they're lovers of money rather than lovers of God. Now, they proclaim to be lovers of God. They saw themselves as the primary example of what a godly person was like. A person who worshiped the God of Israel. And yet, they scoffed at this because they didn't value God above all things. They valued their treasure above God. And then Jesus tells a second parable, basically the same point. If, you use, if we use our money as consumers, instead of seeking every way possible to invest in the hope of others, then we'll be in a place of torment, a place that's separated from God. That's because that's evidence of no relationship with Christ through faith. It's one of the things that happens to us. It changes our value system. We begin to value God above all things, above all of our possessions, or all that we could possess. We value God. So how should this teaching affect us? First of all, we ought to understand that the Bible is really clear. If our love of money and things is so deep that the writings of Moses and the prophets of God do not change our values, then we will not be changed even if Jesus Christ should rise from the dead, which he did. We'll not receive him for who he really is. That's the difference between religion and a walk with Jesus Christ, a life with Jesus Christ. And so this reveals our heart has to be prepared to receive Christ for who he really is, specifically the heart must be freed from the love of things before, that is the love of money, before we will embrace Christ. A lot of times uh, we want to tell people, and I've done this before, uh, you don't have to do anything, just believe. Just believe. And the fact is, oh no, you have to value him above all things or you won't believe. Unless you come to the place where you believe that Jesus Christ is worth more than all that you could ever accumulate in this world, you will not rest your trust in him. Jesus Christ embodies a radical freedom from the love of things and a deep pleasure in the service of others. So people who get their joy in life from luxury rather than from love will not be able to receive Jesus for who he really is.
how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God, we are told in this book. I have to see Christ for who he really is. I have to see him as being worth above and beyond all the riches of this world. In fact, notice what happens to the people at, on the day of Pentecost when the church is born. Turn back there, if you are back towards the back of the Bible, Acts chapter 2. Very familiar passage when the Spirit is poured out and the church is formed. And we are told in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, if you'll turn there. In verse 41 it says, So then, those who had received the word were baptized that day. There were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching about Christ and in fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with with all as anyone might have a need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Um, all of us have seen on the news these news reports about these homes in southern, down in Southern California. I, where, where is it at? It's uh, on the coast. But you know that mudslide, the, burn, the fires, and then the mudslide that follows in these millions, three, four, five million dollar homes that were totally destroyed. And some of them have been told that the insurance company is not going to cover it. Others have been told, yes, they have to. These people that is described here in the book of Acts, in Acts 2, they came from all over the Roman Empire. They left their homes to come and celebrate the, the, Feast, of Tab- the Feast of Pentecost in Jerusalem. And while they were there, they heard the gospel. And they saw the power of the Spirit. And they heard the message and they believed. They heard the message in their own language, supernaturally. And they believed on Christ. So what did they do? They gladly stayed in Jerusalem. All their riches were back somewhere in some other country where they lived. But they stayed right there. And they lived together with all of the believers in Jerusalem and they were taken care of by these other believers. People were selling their properties, selling everything they had in order to give and take care of these fellow believers. What's going on here? They had a massive value change, radical value change. They valued Christ and his people above their riches. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? And this is exactly what Jesus is saying. That's why this, he praises this man. Because this man, though he was an unbeliever, He was shrewd enough to use his resources to pave the way for himself. And he says, the sons of light, the children of light, you and I, believers, sometimes we're not as shrewd. We don't see the great value, the great wisdom there is in investing all that we have in the kingdom of God. And you think, well, he's about ready to take an offering, isn't he? No. No, I'm just telling you, that the value system in the kingdom of God, which we are a part of, it's the kingdom of God's dear son. This is that part of the, the, the form of the kingdom that lasts 
from the pouring out of the Spirit until the second coming of Christ. And as we live on this earth, where there are going to be scoffers all the time saying that we are nitwits, there's a new TV program coming on called Living Biblically, and it's a comedy about how stupid we are. Living biblically. (laughs) You see, what's happened is our value system has changed. And so we value Christ above all things. And therefore, we want to invest in that which would cause the gospel of the kingdom to spread into all the world. We support missionaries. We support people in ministry around the world. Why do we do that? Because we see the value of that as being above and beyond our accumulating wealth for ourselves. And this is exactly what Jesus is talking about. And so he says to them, he tells them this story about Abraham saying if they have the law and the prophets, they have Moses and the prophets, they have the Old Testament. That's all they had. Remember, no New Testament books were written yet when this took place. So let's go back and look at the words of Moses and the prophets. For example, Deuteronomy 6, 5 and Leviticus 19, 18, Moses said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. With everything that you are, you ought to love God. You are to love God with everything that you are, everything you have. And then in Leviticus 19, he says, and you're to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, these are the two great commandments. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, no one knows the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son. And no one knows the Son except the Father. Now, he did say, no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom he makes him known. That's believers. See, the reason you're always going to be ridiculed for your value system is because those who have not come to know the Father don't see the value in knowing God. You do. You do, believer. You know what it's like to have the Father, to have your eyes open to the Father. I love that passage. I repeat it over and over again in 2 Corinthians 4, 6 when he says that the God who said let light shine into darkness is the one who caused the light of the glory of God to shine in the face of Christ into our hearts. Our eyes are open to the glory of Christ supernaturally by the work of God. You see, uh, Jesus is the one, we saw this last week, he's the one who came to seek and to save that which was lost. Over the last 25, 30 years, the church has gotten so sophisticated in America, we've come up with plans to win the world to Christ. We have these master plans of how we can go and reach uh, unreached people groups. But what we've discovered is, what everybody's discovered who's been involved in this, God's in charge of this process. <laughs> and he's the only one who can turn the heart. There was a very popular pastor who said about five years ago, and then he ate his words, he said, if I could find out what controls your heart, I could lead you to Christ. He thought, if I could figure out what it is that your heart loves beyond all other things, I could lead you to Christ. Sorry, only God can cause the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ to shine in their hearts. And so he has to work. And this is why, as we bear witness for Christ, we keep praying. 
We keep talking to God about people that we want them to come to know Christ and then we share Christ. But we know that it's only if the God of the universe opens their eyes to the glory of Christ, the glory of God in the face of Christ, that we come to see the value of God. I told you about this guy in a class I was teaching. I was an extension of master's, master's College. And this young man started complaining about things that were going on in the church today. One of them was the poverty gospel. Well, I'd never heard of that. I didn't know what he was talking about. And so I asked him, he said, oh, you know the stuff that Francis Chan and Mark Platt teach, that you've got to be willing to be poor in order to follow Christ. He called that the poverty gospel. <laughs> <laughs> and of course that's not what they teach they don't teach you how to be poor to follow Christ they, what they teach is you have to value Christ above all things in order to follow Christ because there's always going to be things competing in your life and in your heart for total devotion to Jesus Christ what do you possess right now that is the apple of your eye I woke up this morning at 1.30 because my wife is at the retreat. And uh, so I wake up and I don't know what to do. I'm so disoriented. Where is she? And then I realized where she was at. And then I, I had to just get up and read the word because I couldn't sleep. Well, we value one another. But we also realize, I realize that my wife is a gift from God. And he's told us that we should love one another the way Christ loved us. Why do we do that? Because we value Christ above all things. And so what Jesus is getting at here is that we should learn to use the riches, the unrighteous riches, that is the riches we accumulate in this life, to invest in the kingdom of God. To invest in the kingdom of God. You know, that's the only sure absolutely sure investment you could ever make. All of us have made investments in things that we thought were going to make us a lot of money, or at least a lot of us, maybe only dummies like me. But um, you finally come to realize, you know what? I have a very limited amount of money I can invest in anything, and I think I'm going to invest in the sure thing, the kingdom of God. I think I'm going to give all that I can to the kingdom of God. My energy my resources, because nothing else, nothing else will ever pay the dividend that this pays. My son, at my dad's funeral, my son sang a song called Thank You for Giving to the Lord. I got to read you these words. You can imagine what I, I was like uh, when he sang this song. Because my dad discipled my son. He didn't call it that. He didn't know that's what it was, but that's what it was. He discipled him. He loved him and he showed him how to walk with Christ and how to love people above things. This is how the song goes. I dreamed I went to heaven. You were there with me. We walked along the streets of gold beside the crystal sea. We heard the angels singing. Then someone called your name. You turned and saw a young man and he was smiling as he came. He said, friend, you may not know me now. But then he said, but wait, you used to teach Sunday school when I was only eight. Every week you would say a prayer before the class would start. One morning when you said that prayer, I asked Jesus in my heart. Now that sounds a little hokey to some of us, but let me tell you something. That's exactly what happens. People give themselves, invest their lives, 
and the resources in the kingdom of God, and God does powerful, glorious, wonderful things in the hearts of people. They turn to Christ and experience eternal life. That's what had, had happened to my son. I remember when he got saved, he was about six years old. We went out to play basketball with the Fernandes brothers and a bunch of guys down at the high school. And all the way there, I'm talking to him about the gospel. I'd been on this kick because I heard uh, J. Vernon McGee talk about how he used to share the gospel with his daughter every time they were together, every single time. If they were driving somewhere, he would always talk to her about the gospel. And he said, after she got saved one time, she said, Dad, I am a believer. Why do you have to keep telling me this? And he said, I told her because I want to make sure it's the most important thing in all of life. I, I heard a, a youth pastor complaining the other day about the fact that one of the big problems we have in churches is youth pastors uh, find out that parents think that they're going to be the ones, that the youth pastor is going to be the ones who disciples their children. And so they just kind of check out. And he talked about the folly of that, that you're in the place of influence. You are in the place of influence in your children's life and your grandchildren's life. And you have the gospel. Can they see that you value Christ above all things? Can they see that in us? The, the last little verse here says, little things that you had done, sacrifices made, unnoticed on the earth, heaven now proclaims. And I know up in heaven that you're not supposed to cry, but I was almost sure there were tears in your eyes. As Jesus took your hand and you stood before the Lord, he said, my child, look around you, for great is your reward. There's nothing more important in your life than influencing people for Christ. There is nothing else you could ever do that has that value. It is the greatest value in all of life. My, my grandfather, my dad's dad, died before I was born, long before I was born. He died when my dad was 15 years old. But I've read, I've read all these things about him that my grandmother wrote when he died. And one of the things was, he was an example of a follower of Jesus Christ. He was a preacher of the gospel. And he loved his children with the love of Christ. And they had no doubt at all that he valued Jesus Christ above all things and he made them want to live that kind of life. My dad didn't get saved till I was 14. And he became a believer. And then he was a changed man and all of a sudden all that stuff. He'd always been tenderhearted. But all of a sudden he said, he told me that at, that at this particular time when he came to Christ, he, he had heard the gospel preached and he came forward and knelt and repented and received Christ. And he said... What happened was, for the first time in my life, I realized that Christ died for me. I knew that he died for the world. I knew he died for people. But I never took it personally. But that day, the Holy Spirit drove this truth so deep in my heart, I could not sit still. I had to go to him and receive him. And so my, my son got the benefits of that relationship. And you know what? All of you who have received Christ, you have valued Christ above all things. Don't let Satan lie to you and convince you that that's just silly. 
This is the greatest truth in the gospel is that we treasure Christ above all things. Nothing competes with him. Nothing that we own, nothing we could possibly possess, nothing that we could hoard, nothing. He's worth above all things so we can give ourselves to him. It's a good investment. It's a glorious investment. Let me pray for you. Our Father, first of all, I want to ask you from my heart that you would bless your people. I want to ask you for Frank Williams. I pray that you would cause this depression to lift from his life and his heart be filled with the joy of the Lord. I pray that he would see that the value of Christ above all things, even above his suffering. Father, we long to be people who manifest the reality of your worth in the way we live our lives. We want to value above all things. So help us to encourage each other to do that very thing. We are a community of faith and we have access to one another. We can talk to each other about the living God. We can talk to one another about the Lord Jesus. And I pray, oh God, that we could encourage one another's hearts that the only thing in all of life that has unlimited value is Christ and our relationship with him. And Father, we thank you for sending him into this world to open our eyes to who you are. You are our Father. And we thank you for your love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Help us to turn our hearts towards you, Father. Love you above all things. There is nothing that can compete with that. And we are fully aware of that. And we thank you for giving us something to live for, the most glorious thing to live for, the glory of Jesus Christ. Thank you for your kindness to us, Father. Help us to live our lives in trust and obedience to you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.